May 28, 2002. It is a day that is permanently etched in my memory. It's a day that was supposed to be a day of great rejoicing, a day of excitement. It was a day that was, at least for the two previous years, just such a day because it's a day when my middle child was born two years before, May 28, 2000. We went to the doctor for the sonogram. We were going to find out the gender of our soon-to-arrive child. And as we sat there in a familiar surrounding, it's a place we'd been two times before. We knew the procedure. We knew what hap would happen. We knew the steps that were taken. You know, we sit down. The practitioner puts the jelly on her belly. They get out that wand and they start moving it all around and doing all this stuff. And, you know, they get to that point. You want to know what the gender is? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us. You know. You're going to have a boy. Cool. Another boy. But then she kept moving the wand around. She kept looking. She kept measuring. She kept doing things. This went on for 15, 20 minutes. And we knew. We'd been through this process two times before. We knew. After they tell you the gender, they really don't have much left to do. They're just going to kind of wrap things up, take a few more measurements, and you'll be on your way. But she's going on 15, 20 minutes, and then suddenly she gets up and walks out of the room without a word. And the doctor comes in. Now we're just a little bit concerned because that's not supposed to happen. We weren't supposed to see him today. He put a little bit more of the gel on, and he starts doing his own measurements, his own searching. And after about 10 minutes, he says, Mr. and Mr. Mr. Mrs. Pierce, um, your child is showing all the signs of spina bifida. My first thought is, what's that? I've never heard of the condition, never heard of the reality of it. He said it's a it's a birth defect that happens with the child. When, when you're being formed in the womb, you start out flat, and then you, you form into a, a tube. And where that tube connects, that's where your spinal column is going to be. And what happens with children with spina bifida is somewhere along the way that connection is not made. And so they have what's called a lesion, a hole on, on their back over their spine. And because that lesion is there, the amniotic fluids and so forth get into and they, they hit those nerves and those nerves die and anything below that lesion is basically broken. It won't work. And where we're seeing your the lesions on your child's back it tells us that this is a pretty serious case. Um, he'll He'll never walk. He might not ever talk. He's going to have severe learning disabilities.
let us hand you over to our genetic counselor. So we go back with the genetic counselor and go into her office and sits down. First words out of her mouth, not I'm sorry, not I know this is hard, not, you know, I feel for you, nothing like that. First words out of her mouth is, you know this allows you to have an abortion. And now I'm not only sad, I'm angry. And both my wife and I in unison say, nothing permits that. But she begins to tell us of the things that we'll face, the, the hardships, the difficulties that we'll encounter with a child such as this. And as she's going through these things, I'll be honest, my ADD kicked in just a little bit, and my mind is going a totally different place. Because just about an hour before, when I had found out I was going to have a boy, I was making plans. I have two sons, and I'm going to pair them up. They're going to be amazing athletes. They're going to conquer the world. They're going to do whatever. That's, that's what we're going to do. And now I'm being told nothing but hardship ahead. And I start questioning God. Why? Why? What did I do? What did my wife do to deserve such a prognosis, such a future? I mean, just two days from then, I was scheduled to leave for Africa, go on a mission trip to lead 21 seminary students through the bush to reach out to people who had never heard the name of Jesus. I was a seminary professor. I was an interim pastor. I was not a rebellious type. I never had been. All I ever wanted to do was serve God. Here he was putting this in my lap. And I struggled, as many of us struggle when we get news that is beyond our comprehension. A diagnosis that is terminal. A loved one who has passed suddenly. Difficulties and hardships that seem too much for us to be able to take. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do, and that was dig into the scriptures. And the first place he led me was to the book of Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk, you have the prophet there dealing with the loss of Jerusalem. Struggling with the fact that the sin of the people, the crimes that they had committed, had led to the destruction of the city that he loved, the temple that he'd worshipped in, the life that he had known was all being swept away in, in basically mere moments. 
as Babylon came in and conquered the city, tearing down the walls, tearing down the temple, burning the buildings, killing countless thousands of people. And he says there in that psalm, he, he reflects there and he talks about how he heard the news and his bones began to rot within him. And I identified with that. This feeling of just weakness. Physical weakness. It was, a, it was an emotional reality to be sure, but there was a physical aspect to it that kicked in that I really wasn't expecting. You see, my whole life, I really hadn't had to deal with anything that was too horrible. My grandparents passed really before I was born, so I never even got to experience the loss of them. They just were never there. Although I was born very uh, ill myself, there was a good chance I wasn't going to survive. I was an RH factor baby. And uh, there was a good chance I wasn't going to survive that. I don't remember that. For me, life had just been good. And so when I was hit with this, it wasn't just the emotions. It wasn't the, the sadness. It wasn't the anger at the, the, the words of the genetic counselor. It was also this weakness inside, physical, almost inability to stand and inability to, to function. So I understood why. And I began to develop a theology of suffering. That's the way my mind works. How do we deal with this? And I want to deal with that this morning by looking at it in two passages. Ruth chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 1, we read in the first five verses, it says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. And a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. And her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the other second was named Ruth. And after they had lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. What a desperate, desperate situation Naomi finds herself in. She's in a foreign land. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. In this culture, she has no means of supporting herself. She couldn't go out and get a job. She couldn't go out and, and, and take care of herself the way 
we have opportunities today, it just was not a possibility for her. She was solely dependent upon the charity, the kindness of the community around her. And when you read the story, what's interesting about it, what I find interesting about it is we're not given explicit expression as to why Elimelech and the two boys die. There's a number of ways you could read this passage. There's a number of ways you could, you could see what's going on here. Just based upon other biblical stories where you have similar realities taking place. And I think that's part of the power of the story. I think that's part of the, the power of what we're told here is because the text doesn't give us the answers. It lets us kind of draw some of our own conclusions and then let the rest of the story answer those realities. One of the reasons they may have died was the judgment of God. Now, why might I say that? Well, there's a couple things that, that may hint in that direction. Number one is, is some of the verbs. The re she remained and she was left are verbs that we commonly find in places where a person survives after others have been judged. The, the, the verbal agreement there is often used in, in that sort of situation. But secondly, what they had moved to Moab. And they had married foreign wives. Two things that the book of Deuteronomy make very clear are not things that God would have the Israelites do. Don't leave the land. Don't marry foreign wives. And so you have the possibility that this is indeed the judgment of God on these individuals here. On the other hand, the passage makes nothing of that if that's the case. The passage never says, and God moved against them, or God took them, or God did this. You, you never get any kind of reflection of that in the passage. Although God's sovereignty is acknowledged throughout the book, you never have a clear statement that God is judging them for some sort of sin. And so it's possible that this is just the circumstances of life that have led to the loss here. The whole book starts with what? During the time of the judges. Now, what do we know about the time of the judges? The time of the judges was a very dark time in Israel, a time when no one obeyed God. Not even the judges, the, the people who were raised up to lead Israel and to help them. When you look at their stories in detail, when you look at their stories in context, you find that those people are not honoring God with their actions. Samson forsaking every vow that he's supposed to hold. Gideon saying, only God should be your king, and then names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. Jephthah sacrificing his only child. Over and over again, you see these dark, dark stories in the time of the judges, and, and you say, that is not a good place to be. And so could we really judge a man for leaving Israel when Israel wasn't even what Israel was supposed to be. They themselves were uh, expressions of the Canaanites around them. I mean, Samson's name is honoring a Canaanite god. 
And so you see these truths here, and, and can we really say that this was a sin for the man to leave, especially when his name, Elimelech, means my God is king. So maybe it's just the circumstances of life. The passage could go either way, and that's the point. We don't always know why things happen. We don't always know why we're experiencing the hurt we're experiencing, why things are going on that are going on. Is it the judgment of God? Is it just the circumstances of life? I mean, you look at the Bible and you see different ways that God relates to suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of our sin. You see that in the story of, of Saul, the first king of Israel. Why did he suffer? He suffered because not only did he reject the words of the prophet Samuel, but he refused to take responsibility when he sinned. And so God said, I'm going to turn you over to your sin. You see, David, with his actions with Bathsheba, four judgments pronounced on his family because of his sin with her in the murder of Uriah. You see, in the New Testament, you want to move out of Old Testament for a second, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit. and God judged them immediately. God does, in fact, judge sin. God does, in fact, hold us accountable for sin. And so sometimes that is a reason we suffer. Sometimes, however, we suffer because of other people's sin. You look at Cain and Abel. Abel is a righteous man who loved the Lord, gave him the best of everything he had. All he wanted to do was please God. And he was what? He was killed by his brother because his brother couldn't face his own sin, his own inadequacies. You see the story of Amnon and Tamar, David's children. All Tamar wanted to do was minister to her stepbrother, to her half-brother, take care of him in his illness. And he does what? He ends up raping her and leaving her barren in his actions. Sometimes we suffer because of other sins. Sometimes it's just the circumstances of a fallen world. Creation itself, we're told in Romans 8, groans in the pains of childbirth, waiting for what? For the return, the consummation. Because what? Creation itself suffers since the fall. And as part of creation, living in this world, living with the hurricanes and the, 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 the tornadoes and the other storms and the other plagues and difficulties that are part of life, that all comes out of the fall in general. Sometimes, Scripture tells us, we suffer for the glory of God. John chapter 9. As he, talking about Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
See, their go-to was sin had to cause this. But what does Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God might be glorified through his life. That's why. That's why this happened. And so understanding the different causes of suffering can then help us begin to develop a way to, to deal with them and respond to them appropriately. So what do we know about God and suffering? We know, number one, that we don't always know the immediate cause. We don't know which one it is. And so therefore we have to trust God. If it's because of our sin and that becomes apparent, repent and move on. If it's because of some other cause, rest in his arms and trust that he's going to see you through it. We know that God is in relationship with us. And because he's in relationship with us, whatever we're going through, he's going through too. He's there with us. He hasn't abandoned us. In Daniel chapter 3, we have a story that's uh, the favorite of many of us. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There in this story, they are facing hardship. They're facing difficulty. Why? Because of the sin of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has decided to set himself up as king or as God to be worshipped. And they have refused. And because they have refused, they are facing a very difficult circumstance. He is threatening to cast them into the fiery furnace. And we all know the story. We know the story of deliverance, but it's not the story of deliverance I want to focus on here this morning. It's their words in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3. When challenged, when threatened with death, this is what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is... We've already made up our minds. We're not, going to tell you, we're not going to respond to your offer to worship now. We've made up our minds. We're done with that. If this be so, that is, if you're going to cast us in the fiery furnace, then know this. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice the, the, the three responses they have here. Number one, God can deliver us. They had a firm faith in God's ability to do whatever God wants to do. And in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of our difficulties, even when it's somebody else's sin that has led to this situation, we can trust that God is able to get us through that. Secondly, God will deliver us. There is that confidence in God's care for his people. It's not just his power. It's one thing to say God's powerful. It's quite another to say that that power is manifested, expressed through love for us. God will deliver us. He does love us. He is invested in us. We know that he is not only able, but he is willing. But then the third statement. 
but even if he doesn't deliver us. It's a statement we sometimes skip over. Even if you don't, God, I'm going to worship you anyway. That's Habakkuk's statement back in Habakkuk 3. My bones wasted away. The fig tree doesn't blossom. The life is gone from the land that I loved. Yet I will glory in the God of my salvation. For he gives me the ability to walk on deer's feet. Even though my world is falling apart, I will worship God. I will praise God. I will love God. And he can deliver me. He will deliver me. But even if he decides not to deliver me, I'm going to worship him anyway. Those words still resonate with me to this day as we continue to deal with Jonathan's situation. His name, by the way, means Yahweh's gift. That's why we named him that. Every day, as we interacted with him, as we said his name, we would be reminded that he was a gift from God. And you know what? He does talk. Y'all have heard him. If I could give him a chance, he'll talk your ear off. And he does, or he has, at least up to the last couple of weeks, walked. In fact, a couple of years ago, he was in uh, Special Olympics. And um, he was in the walking race and was disqualified because he ran. God is able to deliver. God will deliver. But even if he doesn't, and there have been some really rough times in Jonathan. He's 20 years old now. And there's not been a single year of his life that he's not spent at least a week in the hospital. As many of you know, he's currently back in the hospital right now, struggling with some things. The doctors are not even sure what's going on with most of it. But I stand before you today to say that even though God didn't completely deliver us, I'll worship my God. Because he has been so, so good. And he has seen us through so many things. As I've shared before, the number one expression of worship in the Psalter is a lament. The most common form of song in all the Psalms are laments, songs of sorrow and grief. God wants us to be real with Him with our sorrow and grief. Sadly, too often, 
The church is the one place you can't do that. You walk in, overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by a specific situation, overwhelmed by some hurt that you're experiencing, and what are you told? Oh, put a smile on. Come on, don't you love Jesus? Don't you know Jesus loves you? So we do. We put on that facade. We put on that face. We put on that smile. Because that's what we've been trained to do. And all the while, our hurt goes unrecognized. Goes undealt with. I want our church to be a place of joy. Our God is victorious. And He has made us more than overcomers by the blood of Jesus Christ. But I also want our church to be a place where we can be real and recognize, again, that while God is good, life isn't always. And that of all the places where we can be real, where we can express sorrow, this needs to be at the front of the list. Because it's here that we have answers. It's here that we find hope. It's here that we find deliverance. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the custom of some. Come together to encourage one another all the more as the day of Christ's coming draws near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. As a kid, I remember preachers mentioning that passage, saying, oh, well, they're just throwing that passage out because that's the one place the Bible says come to church. But that's really not the heart of that passage. The heart of that passage is not you need to be in church. The heart of that passage is so that you can find encouragement and hope in the midst of the hurt you're facing. 